Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Lifestyles Connected, the Mind Street of Poetry and Music with your director manager, your host, Maria Ilyu, and Anchor Weekly Radio Show. And welcome to my show. Oh, so we're going to have our special poets coming on to the show. We have James P. Wagner. He also is a, a published author, a poet, and he also has... Uh, um, you know, the gems, uh, poetry gems, um, published people's poetries. And he also has been on the um, the radio shows um, called The Human Potential a couple years ago. And also we're going to have Brian uh, Burns calling in a little bit later. And Brian Burns, he's also a published poet, and he also um, he has his own organization called the Princess Rapunk. Rup- Princess Rakankma Productions, he's a CAO for many years, and, and he provides poetry and contests every year um, for, for over, you know, about 15 years. So, and with James B. Wagner, he, like I said, he, um, he hosts his own shows. I also, Maria Ilio, hosts many radio shows, learning to, I was a, uh, learned to be a co-host, I learned, I learned how to write my own scripts. I learned to to be a host for the show. And in the summer, I learned to write, um, like I said, my own scripts. I uh, did other radio shows, like for the poetry, you know, a theater show. Um, I helped out uh, writing scripts for uh, for the teenager show and so on. I did, uh, did a lot. Today, um, besides also Murray Ilya is... Is um, you know the uh, a world artistic ambassador for Long Island, New York, and uh, for many things. Today is a show. It's a special show today. Um, it's a uh, it's uh, besides connecting. We're, uh, it's a connecting show, or uh, it's an opportunity. It's like sometimes. Uh, we all have different opportunities, um, and, and it's also a dedication and uh, and a gratitude for Leo and Charlie, and and um, for everything they've done for us for all these years. And um, we're having a special. Uh, we're gonna have a poetry reading, and also we're thanking for for the, uh, for our experiences. So. Going on towards we are now today is June nineteenth, two thousand seventeenth, and also um, we're going to have later coming on to the show Tim Polipia. He's also a, a a play writer. We also he done uh, 
radio drummer. We he uh, wrote up different scripts, played different voice um, as an actor, played voice characters. I also played voice characters with his plays. Marie Ilya did that. Uh, played uh, different um, characters. Also Phoebe Muir. Also she was also as a voice character, and also she also wrote her own play and. Um, and we also put that to live and for onto the radio show for radio drama, also, I and many other things. So we're gonna welcome to our guests, and and we're gonna play a little bit some music. Welcome to the show. Um, so you could give the audience your name, and you said that you went to spoke out and anchor at Edgar, you said Edinburgh. 
Yes, so the last uh, conference I attended was the one in, in Edinburgh, uh, but I, I actually uh, met her or, or spoke to her on the phone going back. I think it was the year 2000 or maybe 2001. Uh, so I've been to conferences ever since that, um, uh, you know, most of them in, in Vancouver or, or near that area. Oh, interesting. And what are some of the topics that you spoke out for the Anchor International Artistic People's Voice um, Festival back in that Well, one of the things I've talked a lot about is trying to understand the big picture of the autism spectrum. You know, every, on an everyday basis, we go through and we experience a lot of things that uh, are overwhelming, and we often don't think about how everything uh, fits together and how, uh, for example, if you are very sensitive to noise, uh, you know, how that can uh, make you get tired much more quickly. So it sort of goes into a vicious cycle. Uh, so, you know, that's one of the things I've, I've emphasized. I've also emphasized the idea that individuals are very different from each other. And in fact, we find that a lot of people on the spectrum, are, uh, sometimes they gravitate toward one extreme or the other good friend of mine, uh, when she was growing up, would entertain her friends by sucking on uh, car battery terminals and the sparks would fly and she couldn't feel a thing. But on the other hand, you know, if she goes into a large uh, retail store like Target, uh, I'm not sure if you have Target in, in uh, Canada, but but um, you know, the Target store, one of these big discount stores, and she would be reduced to to you know to extreme stress uh, with all the lights flashing. Oh, definitely. Some of these things. So, uh, you know, again, we have to be very careful not to assume that other people on the spectrum are experiencing the same things uh, that we do. In in my case, uh, my biggest um, uh, challenge, uh, you know, where where I have the most to overcome is spatial perception and being able to find my way. People would tell me when when they give me directions, you can't miss it. And I say, oh, yes, I can. But uh, what's interesting, many of you know about uh, Jerry Newport, um, who does uh, some amazing uh, mathematical feats. He can tell you, if you tell him your birthday, uh, birth date, you, you know, he can tell you on what day of the week you were born and things like that. He's actually, he was actually a taxi driver, so you know, for him, the visual ability was a strength that was something that he was good at doing. Uh, so here we are, both people on the spectrum, but uh, we're you know, radically different in in that sense, so uh, you know, that's something that we learn over time that that we can be very different. As a Temple Grandin used to say, that uh, most people on the spectrum are uh, visually oriented, and you know, she did that with the best of intentions. But uh, you know, years later, she came back and realized that uh, that was the experience she had had, and that maybe what the majority of these people on, on the spectrum tend to lean toward, but a lot of us, on the other hand, were much more verbal, uh, you know, so uh, our experience has been very different. Um, yes, definitely, because a lot of people um, can manage some of the noises, even though they could be um, they could be an overload for them. And um, and others, they have um, they have like international, they have um, more difficult to manage because the noise is just so overwhelming that they have more challenges through it. And I do, we do see that, and for many on the people on the spectrum, especially like you said, um, who also was nonverbal. 
Now, nonverbal could be yeah. with no language. Nonverbal could be limited language. And, and, and nonverbal means just that the person cannot share their story about who they are. Right. As a person. And again, it, it's something that may uh, be the case some of the time, and uh, that's so, uh, you know, some people may speak some of the time, but not uh, other times. Even in, in my case, even though I'm highly verbal and I speak as a, a living as, as a professor, uh, you know, when I get very tired, it can be much more difficult for, for me to speak. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, it's, it's, it's something that uh, you may experience to different degrees at, at different times. And there might be things that you can handle, say certain noises you can handle on some days and you can't handle them necessarily on other days for a variety of reasons. Oh, uh, definitely, because sometimes you could be more uh, hypersensitive. Your body could be so oversensitive. It's just that you, you know, you feel the impact more, you know. And also yeah. I just want to let I just wanted to let you know we're going to welcome our poet on um, to the show. Welcome, James. Hey, Maria. How's it going? Very good. We have um, Dr. Peirce here. Um, he's, you know, he's he's a professor at the college, and he also um, he's he was at the Anchor International Artistic People's Awards conference in Edinburgh and, and a few other ones, and he also was at the Film Fest in California. Right, Peirce? Right, Lauren? Oh, yes, that's right. right. Yes, yes, that's right. Oh, hey, how you doing? Oh, fine, how about you? And, yeah, so, yeah, so that, yeah, so he was saying, too, is that, um, James, we were talking about people who are nonverbal also have different challenges and very hyping and very noise sensitivities, and you're not going to know what one per, one person is different from the other until you get to know them. So, what's your thoughts or intake on it? What, what the, what uh, I was listening in. I was listening in for a while, and uh, you know, I mean, I actually, I, I agree pretty wholeheartedly with uh, pretty much everything that he was saying. Because you know, one of the things that kind of bugs me a lot, especially in the internet age, is you know, autistic advocacy groups and stuff like that online. They're always sharing like these, you know, bucket lists or these lists like, you know, 10 things to never say to an autistic person or 22 things that all autistic people, you know, think or, you know, 17 things, 17 preferences for, you know, the autism community and stuff like that. And it's like, I hate, I I hate when people do that for pretty much any group (laughs) because it's, you know, especially a group that's really large, you know, you see those things like, oh, 17 things to never say to a woman. It's like, okay, so... Have you taken every single woman on the planet and, you know, pulled them on this on their thoughts on this? Or are you just assuming it because, you know, the six women in your, you know, little clique don't like that or like that? You know, it's just, and it's the same thing with autistic individuals, especially, you know, as we, you know, I've been discovering that there's a lot more, you know, people on the spectrum than, you know, we may have thought in the past. And so when you have a group that large, you're never, there's never going to be any one, you know, blanket characteristic that you can put across everybody and so when you assume that you know all autistic people have this issue or this talent or this proclivity you know or or this struggle it's like you're you're really not doing anybody a major service you're you know you're just casting a blanket you're not really looking at them as individuals i mean you know every like everybody is is an individual you know so i I, i've always hated those you know those things and in some cases those things come from a place of you know attempting to be compassionate and attempting to be you know, nice, 
but I, I don't, you know, I, I think that those things do a lot more harm than good, if you ask me. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. I uh, have, have seen some of these lists as well, and uh, again, many times they're very well-intentioned, but uh, they they just uh, are not appropriate for a uh, number of people on the spectrum. Yeah, because, I mean, I can't really always, off the top of my head. So, go ahead, Maria. No, I was going to say, too, is, you know, I know sometimes some places are trying to make it century-friendly, but it doesn't mean it's always sensory friendly for a lot of people because if you have children who are nonverbal or young adults who cannot handle if they're if the other autistic kids are verbally high or or again um, you know um, they're or they're vocal in the voice because they don't got the language to speak that also could affect another person on the spectrum. So again, it's awesome that the, these uh, some of the facilities are trying to be sensory uh, friendly, but it doesn't always mean it's sensory friendly for everyone. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I can't off the top of my head, I can't think of a single blanket characteristic that you can really apply, you know, to autistic people. I mean, you know, generally speaking, you can say that you know mo- most of us, you know, deal with some kind of an you know an overload of some kind, but what that overload is, whether it's sensory through the eyes or through the ears or, you know, nonverbal, it, it, it greatly varies from person to person. And, you know, also the levels of the struggle vary from person to person. So, you know, you can maybe try to take like the common denominator and say that, you know, in general, autistic people, you know, deal with this, but you know, when you, when you try to throw that entire blanket over the entire group, you're, you're, you know, you're missing a whole lot. And, you know, and I, I think that society in general really likes to try to come up with, like, you know, a very non-nuanced, very short description of pretty much everybody because it's easy that way. But everything is nuanced. And, you know, the funny thing is in the world of social media now, we're seeing more, you know, more groups uh, advocating for more nuance in specific cases, but missing it completely in other cases and you know I, I the biggest thing is just every everybody is an individual everybody has individual needs and you know like if you are an establishment even even if you have the best of intentions you're never going to be able to you know open up you know the cosmos of the universe and know every single person's needs who are going to you know walk within you know your establishment so the really the only real way to really know is to communicate with people Doctor, what you thought about it, Doctor Lance? Yeah, uh, that, that, those are, are, are definitely uh, good points. And again, I, I might echo here the, the need often to try to explore what what is uh, helpful for each individual, not to take for granted what's worked for for others. Um, I'm definitely, and everything else. Mommy. So well, again, one thing yeah. I think that's uh, one thing that uh, can be helpful is if you can find sort of a model, somebody who is very similar to, to you. And in many ways, I was very lucky that 
some of the first books I read were by Dion Holiday Willie, and it turns out that Dion and I are very similar, uh, relatively similar to each other. Uh, so uh, when you know what I, I had never realized uh, when. Um, this was back in around the late 1990s or early 2000s, and uh, I'd always had trouble finding my way around. I had no idea at the time that uh, that uh, this had anything to do with uh, being on the spectrum. Uh, I, I'd assumed that was something uh, different. And as you know, the um, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association uh, until the last edition never, for example, mentioned uh, sensory issues. So uh, I could relate to a lot of things uh, from beyond. I, I thought that uh, autism was primarily an issue of social relationships with, with people, but, you know, understand, hearing what beyond had experienced and seeing that all put together uh, really helped me understand myself a great deal. So if you can find somebody who is relatively similar to you or you know, has a lot in common, uh, that might uh, help uh, avoid a lot of trial and error if you can uh, look at, at what has worked for someone who's, who is relatively more similar to you. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that, that could be like a role model to teach people for autism. And, and you know, also, too, is that autistic people, it's like um, they can feel other people's emotions, even though they might not able to always express in words what they, what they feel from, what they feel and the impact from you. That could put them in an overload. Yes, definitely. And, yeah, you know, I mean, what, what and, James. I was just going to say that, yeah, I, you know, growing up, I had that problem a lot where, uh, you know, just defining myself by all the other different labels and terms and subterms was very difficult. And eventually I just kind of stopped caring and just was like, well, you know, like Popeye, I am who I am, you know, but, um, <clears throat> you know, because there was so many, um, you know, lists or checklists of like, oh, well, to be on, you know, the autism spectrum, you know, you need to have nine out of 14 of this, or, you know, to be Asperger's, you must be this, or you must experience this, and, you know, you must be socially awkward in this way, or, you know, not relate to other kids in this way, and, like, you know, I, I was awkward, I didn't relate to kids, but not in the way, you know, not necessarily in the ways that they were describing, and all of the, you know, all the definitions and all the social, you know, cues that they have for judging autistic and not autistic, they're very non-operational definitions, you know, and in the, you know, the science community, operational definitions mean something that's fully quantifiable. And, you know, for those listening who aren't into science, but, and, and so it's like, there's so many things on the list that could be autism or they could be something else. They're not like autism exclusive. Like one of them is fidget. Um, you don't have to be autistic to fidget, but this is on the list. So there can be a lot of confusion, especially when, there's such a need to kind of pigeonhole you into something so that they could, you know, give you either an IEP or put you in a specific set of classes. And, it, you know, it can be very confusing to the individual when you're trying to just figure yourself out and they have all these things or whatever. Cause I, I you know, I, I consider myself covertly autistic in a lot of ways because most people, you know, who meet me, they don't, they don't think I am upon meeting me, uh, you know, which in some, you know, it's different than other experiences other people have. But, 
I, I get, you know, sensory overloads, you know, and I can get, you know, very over, you know, over, you know, just, uh, you know, overwhelmed in large, large groups of people, even though I do that for a living and I've kind of learned how to cope with it to an extent, I, you know, it doesn't make the experience necessarily any better. And, you know, the thing is, though, there's no one, there, there's no, like, list of triggers either. It's just usually it's a, it's a combination of things that just happen to go the wrong way that kind of set things like that off for me. So it was kind of very hard for people to really just classify as, okay, you are this. And, you know, yeah, so that, so a lot of those books and a lot of those early lists and even the lists that they have now aren't really, uh, you know, necessarily, you know, they're not infallible, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, again, also, you know, one thing that, uh, you know, you have to think about is that physicians and school psychologists uh, sometimes have to come down one way or the other for purposes of uh, making a a, um, diagnosis and and to some extent uh, assessing uh, the need and eligibility for certain types of, of services. But, uh, you know, again, what we find is that um, after uh, an individual has been identified, we still have to look at uh, exactly what he or she needs. That's, you know, why we do call in the United States. Uh, we have the idea of an individualized education plan, uh, you know, which uh, is intended to be made for the individual, uh, taking everything into consideration. Um, uh, you know, and, and that um, is often something that uh, is overlooked, uh, you, know, uh, you know, often with limited resources that school districts have in limited time, you might see a tendency toward cookie-cutter types of approaches and putting in kind of standard uh, objectives uh, that may be suitable for some but not for, for others. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, when you have on average 30 students to one teacher, you know, it, like the, the whole, you know, some some colleagues of mine, you know, and myself have said, uh, you know, for a long time that school was designed to be more efficient for the educators rather than the educated in a lot of cases. So if it was really, if it was really, you know, like, you know, you're really thinking this is a hundred percent for the educated, you would have, you know, one-on-one and every, you know, one-on-one instruction in a lot of cases and sometimes two, two two-on-one instruction, you know, or, you know, you'd have much smaller groups rather than, you know, I mean, it's better than the days when it was like you had, you know, one giant school classroom where you talk grades one through eight in, you know, a, you know, a big schoolhouse with like 120 people and one teacher and like one assistant. But, you know, it's still in some cases still has, you know, ways, ways to go. <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, yeah. Yes, that definitely too. Also, you notice too sometimes, right, uh, James also and other ones. Sometimes organizations for people with autism, um, it's not always um, 100% for the autistic people and because they're not run by autistic people themselves. And we notice, we notice uh, a lot of that. So, like, um, if you need, um, there was an organization for, you know, for psychologists, but if it's not at the, what they feel, they, they cannot help you, they cannot support you for the individual who's nonverbal. So or they're not wanting to work together as a you know, family how to help that individual out. So things like that or other autism organizations 
they all not run. Uh, they don't know. Uh, they don't always help every single person out there, and they not. They only do uh, a certain level of. I feel, to where they feel. You know what I mean? You know, um, James. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, and you know, I think that 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 happens a lot with any institution. Set like sad to say, uh, happens with just about any institution, in my opinion, that's government run. <laughs> Um, you know, like public education, where it's like you have X number of people who are doing work and they're, got, they're doing the work anyway, but the funding is all provided by the government, and so they have to, you know, keep up to a certain statistic. But they don't really have that, you know, the, like what happens in the private sector where it's you've got to produce results and you've got to keep innovating and keep improving and you've got to keep moving forward in a way. Otherwise, you don't, you know, you don't get your funding, you don't get your stuff. Um, you know, not that I'm, you know, not that I, I mean, No Child Left Behind was a disaster, in my opinion, so I'm not advocating that, but just there is a certain level of apathy in, you know, civil, you know, in certain civil servant positions and, you know, teaching in some cases where it's like you got to do, you know, you got to do the minimum, and sometimes there's really no motivation to go beyond the minimum. And in those cases, you know, uh, people sometimes fall through the cracks. And, you know, like not everybody is designed for a public education. Some people, that system is it just won't work for them. They need something, you know, bigger and better and more structured to them in some cases. And some some public schools are good at, you know, like you know, like the doctor just said with the IEPs. Um, I, I was I was lucky enough to go to a school that was very good with their IEPs. They were kind of ahead of their time with it. But I, you know, people in my age bracket, especially so many of them who were just constantly over medicated for things that they didn't necessarily even need to be medicated for. Because in, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, that was kind of just, you know, the, the, the go-to answer to make things easier for the administration was, okay, put them on medicine. And, you know, and, and the sad thing is we're seeing long-term effects of that now because there's people in my age, I'm, I'm 30, by the way, there's people in my age who uh, are already have, like, short-term memory loss and stuff because of all the medicines that were shoved down their throats, you know, going through school. So there's, you know, it, it, it's... In some cases, it becomes a serious problem, and, you know, I don't think anybody has really come up with exactly what the solution is, as much as they've just identified what the problems are. Yeah, again, it, so it you know, does thought, depend a lot on, on resources, uh, you know, to the extent that you can actually work with the individual and, and see what's effective. For some people, medications are very useful. Uh, Temple Grandin, for example, has said that uh, if it had not been for the existence of antidepressants, she would not be alive today. And uh, I personally benefit from certain medications, but uh, I've heard of other cases where uh, these have not been effective and where they might actually be, be counterproductive. And uh, you know, it's often not uh, easy to predict exactly um, you know, what would work. So... Uh, and, you know, it also depends on uh, a lot of other things. You know, it may be that um, if you can reduce some of the, the sensory overwhelm, for example, that may take away the need for medication. So, so that might be a, a more direct way to, uh, to, 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 to deal with the problems, uh, could, you know, to some extent. Uh, I don't want to um, advocate some of these fringe ideas that people have in terms of nutrition, but... Uh, you know, having good balanced uh, uh, diet is uh, you know uh, beneficial for 
for most people also, you know, with somebody on the spectrum, often we're not as good at monitoring uh, whether we're hungry or not, for example. So, um, you know, finding ways to help uh, become aware of that, some self-check methods, and you know, making sure we're properly hydrated, and some of those things can be very important. Mm. Yeah, because, you know, uh, like growing up, my brother had, you know, very, very extreme uh, hyperactivity and ADHD. And they, you know, going through school, they used to put him on medicine just basically to keep him still in the classroom. And, you know, that did a lot of negative things to his system and his constitution. Uh, as, as an adult, he's gone to, you know, to get prescribed medicine of his own free will for specific issues like he's an artist for a living and so he needs you know he needs to have medicine that helps him focus otherwise he doesn't meet like his deadlines and keep his commissions so but because he was able to identify the problem and you know have some autonomy and identifying the problem and not just being given a cookie cutter you know prescribe this for everybody situation he was able to actually work with his doctors and find what actually worked for him and also you know the quantities which actually help him to help the specific tasks so, you know, I completely agree that, you know, balance is absolutely essential because, you know, when you're just, you know, throwing pills at the kids, you know, just to basically keep them quiet, you know, that's not helping anybody except the teacher there in the short term. And it's certainly not helping the kid. But when you're really working to, you know, identify, you know, an issue and a solution, that can be, you know, that can be magic. I mean, we are very fortunate that we have, we live in a time when a lot of these complex pharmaceuticals are available to us, you know. So, Dr. Lawrence, where is how um, how was your experience at the film fest, and you know, in you know, California, and and what's your thoughts? Whether you you know what? Well, it was uh, it was certainly in, it was certainly interesting. I'm used to meeting there and and Charlie mostly in Canada. This was actually in my home turf here, literally about uh, five kilometers, so about three miles from where I live is where the uh, event was taking place. So uh, we got to see uh, a number of movies. This uh, you know, was uh, a combination of, of other types of films. This was not a, a, a festival exclusively about uh, the autism spectrum, uh, but uh, you know, there were a lot of people in the audience who had no uh, personal background, uh, but you know, who, who got some interesting insights. Uh, you know, got to see what um, some of the things that uh, people on the autism spectrum are experiencing. And, of course, even a lot of people who are not on the spectrum can often relate to some of the experiences that we've had. Um, so um, it was interesting, again, meeting both some people that I already knew from the autism community and then meeting uh, other people. That's wonderful. That's awesome. Um, so what are you, what we're talking about um, as a doctor, what, what's, what's your thoughts and feelings on the solution, you know, what they need to do to to hopefully to help everybody in the future to change some of these now, these. Yeah, now, 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 first of all, just for people who don't know me, let me clarify, uh, you know, I'm not a physician. Uh, I'm a marketing professor, so 
my background is in consumer psychology, and you know, so that's you know what I uh, base my ideas on. Uh, you know, a lot about uh, motivation and, and understanding how people communicate and how we experience things. Uh, and uh, again, I think that uh, the key here, as much as possible, is to help uh, sort of bring up some uh, uh, tricks and traps uh, in ideas uh, under these circumstances. This is, may, this is what you may want to, to think about. Uh, you know, one of the other things is that in many cases uh, in life and in dealing with the ocean spectrum, we have to make choices between different possibilities that both have pros and potential cons. So uh, I usually don't give people outright advice, but I try to help people ask the right questions and help to identify, you know, what might be some things that are at stake in making this decision, and uh, you know, sometimes what might be some things we can prioritize. Uh, you know, again, for people who have not experienced some of the sensory issues and involved with autism, again, it can be very difficult for them to imagine what we experience here, but. In many cases, uh, it can be relatively easy to at least reduce the, the sensory overwhelm, you know, the things like earplugs and strategies uh, for uh, planning. And, uh, uh, you know, once we take care of some of, say, say some of the sensory overwhelm, that, that takes off a lot of the pressure. And uh, that means that uh, we have more energy left to work on, on, on other things. So, you know, we want to look for some of the low-hanging fruit uh, to deal with and, and, and try to to get those stressors off, uh, you know, so we can can work. And, and, and again, uh, you know, this is almost a cliche, but, you know, it's important to try to think about what is this individual experiencing. Um, you know, often we tend to look at somebody else and we you know, whether consciously or not, we, we kind of assume that they're motivated by many of the same things that we are, that they experience uh, many of the same things. And that, uh, you know, often is not the case for, for someone uh, on the spectrum. Uh, so, you know, if we're lucky, we can find other people to serve as models here, you know, so we can uh, get a feeling for what's likely to be more effective. It still doesn't mean that we'll be... Uh, what worked for that person will work for the one we're working with, but at least uh, it improves the odds that we'll find something, and it, it uh, also improves the odds that we can avoid some things that are ineffective and, and highly unpleasant and, and stressful. So uh, you know that's that's basically um, you know what um, uh, you know what we can do to adapt to the individual. Hi, Dr. Lawrence. Listen, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was what I was gonna say is um, for sometimes uh, um, for nonverbal autistic people, what we we're talking about before, a lot of them are very um, very smart, and um, and a lot of times they don't they don't know that until later on in life, or 
sometimes they're not going to know if they don't know, like you said, the right strategy to teach them. Right. You know, and you know, I know there was a story about one. There were um, this young boy. He was diagnosed nonverbal at a young age. He had no language at all, and now, and he um, graduated to the top college of law school. And got his bar, he passed his bar exam before he walked down the aisle to get his diploma. And he's the first autistic person, they said, from that college, to, you know, to able to, 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 to accomplish that goal. Yes, that's definitely a good point. Again, there have been a number of cases where, uh, you know, people thought that here was somebody who really couldn't communicate, but. And they found alternative ways of communicating. Sometimes people can actually write things out on a keyboard uh, or communicate in in other ways. Uh, you know, you know. So it can be, uh, you know, a matter of how you get information out. There's one woman I know who, yeah, who doesn't was, actually I, speak. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, well, I know one woman severely, who doesn't actually speak, yeah, but. Yeah, uh, again, uh, you know, so uh, uh, often that's a sort of a matter of coordination. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes people have found sort of by accident over time that they were able to communicate in certain ways. And so, you know, you, uh, you know, regret that you didn't try some of these strategies uh, early on. Uh, so again, uh, you know, it becomes important to uh, look at, at, at different ways, see what uh, how somebody can engage. It maybe some people can engage, for example, through drawings, or at least to begin with, and maybe you can move on to other forms of communication uh, later on. To some extent, you know, you can use pointing and um, invent different systems that help work with what uh, different people are able to do. So, um, in a little while, um, our another poet is going to be calling into the show, James, Brian Burns. Okay. Yeah, yeah so I even mean, if it's... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that, you know, when it comes to you know, individuals who are nonverbal, there's also the dichotomy of are they nonverbal because they can't talk or are they nonverbal because they choose not to? Um, as, you yeah. know, there was another, another guest on a show that, you know, you had a long time ago who had a philosophy, and he always said, you know, um, you know always assume competence, you know, at first. Don't, because we have a tendency, um, and this is across all walks, of, you know, human existence. We have a tendency to assume that people who don't talk like us, act like us, think like us, are less than us. And that's in just about any civilization, any culture, uh, you know, any empire throughout history, you know, oh, you know, this empire here, we're the civilized ones, them over there, they're the savages, you know, and everybody, you know, this, it's a very common human trait to do that. And, but, you know... Yeah. Like at the same, yeah. But you can have a situation where, like, say that there's somebody, um, example from, you know, from, know, let's just say from Spain who doesn't speak any English, and say that, you know, uh, in Spain maybe they're like, you know, an astrophysicist, 
and maybe they're like, you know, a 50, you know, 50 times book published author and, you know, highly respected speaker or whatever. But then, you you know, you you put them in a, in a conversation with people who only speak English and he might only know, you know, he or she might only know one or two words. And so, you know, the English speakers are going to be thinking, ah, oh, this guy's, you know, freaking dumb. It's like, and that could be completely not true. They just don't speak the same language. So in some cases, yeah. nonverbal, you know, it's like maybe it's like it's, it's not necessarily a matter because we, we so frequently judge only two of the many types of intelligences. And even in education today, they're trying to get better, but there's still the two primary ways that we judge intelligence is verbal, linguistic, and logical, spatial, mathematical. And, you know, I mean, the SATs look at, you know, it's all, you know, verbal and math. Uh, you know, the IQ test is um, largely verbal. And so for people who don't yeah. really have, you know, those gifts, they often get assumed to be incompetent, and that's not always the case. No, it's not. And also they're very smart, and a lot of times people don't, they notice people start talking when after they brought into horse therapy or they brought into something else because they finally found their passion. So when the family members or parents found their loved ones on the structure their passion, uh, like say horse therapy or something else, all of a sudden their language starting to merge and they start to speak and they all they all get surprised like and uh, it's, it's because they all got surprised but he never talked until we went horse therapy he never talked when this but actually they're much smarter than what they, they thought. Oh yeah, I mean I'm not I'm not, a, I'm not a Cinderella story kind of guy. Like I'm not going to automatically assume that everybody who's nonverbal is you know an Einstein level genius. I mean there's plenty of people who are perfectly no. verbal who are also you know, but they have just as much of a chance of being incredibly smart as anybody else does. They just may not have the tools or may not be using the tools that we're using to express that. So you know you can't just um, you know people yeah. as a whole yeah. I just want to let you know, I want to welcome our poet, Brian Burns, onto the show. Hi, Brian. Hi, Hi Maria. How are you? I'm fine. Um, Dr. Lawrence, we have Brian on, on the line, and he also is a, 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 a poet. And um, we, were t- we were talking about the different nonverbal of autism and, um, you know, how, you know, with, mm. yeah, yeah, how this to help people, and also like we're going to, you know, because uh, we also want to read some poems too for Dr. Lawrence and James. Also, too, is with the nonverbal. It also depends on academically where are where um, the family members are in academically. Like that also takes importance of the role that sometimes educators don't take that to consideration. Do that, you know, if the parents are not highly educated, then sometimes. Then all of a sudden the child is is, is very low, um, they're not understanding academically or the world around them. Or sometimes you got um parents are highly educated but it takes a while to understand that child and how to teach that child and sometimes it could take many years later and all of a sudden, wow, they're now their college graduate or now they're you know, this happened, you know. All these opportunities well, are happening for them. Well, I mean, you know, one interesting fact uh, just tidbits in history. Einstein didn't say his first word until he was six and a half, and James Earl Jones didn't speak anything until he was almost nine. So you know, the voice of Darth Vader didn't speak until you know way beyond the average. So 
you know, it doesn't necessarily mean anything if somebody takes longer to get somewhere. You know, there's really we in Western civilization, especially right now, we have this race. You know, who's the first one? You know, do you have the highest score? Are you the first one to accomplish this? You know, are you the best and the fastest and the quickest and the blah 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 blah? And you know, it doesn't always work that way. You know, and sometimes being the first to the finish line doesn't mean you're the best runner anyway. You could collapse right after. You know, there's a lot of other factors, you know, in those things. And we, you know, we have a very linear and a very competitive mindset on that. And we judge things, you know, in comparison sometimes too much to other people, you know, without, without you remembering that everybody, you know, is their own person and that, you know, what works for one person is not going to work for you, but what works for you might not work for the other person. So, um, um, you know, definitely on that, because um, it all depends on how you learn. Um, I also think, I also feel that, you know, teaching a skill or that they can help them, sometimes if education is not the strongest tool for them, it's also important to teach other skills like, you know, I perform arts or woodshop or things that they're doing in the hands. So he has like another outlet, James, you know, for them, for these individuals to do for themselves. Or they need support. Oh, if they're de- really good at something, they will need that support. Oh, definitely. I mean, in some cases, you know, we're, we're too focused on education these days. You know, I mean, there's, you know, how many people have college degrees but couldn't, you know, properly plant a tomato? If they say a larger number of people than probably, you know, because... Like I, there's a lot of a lot of people are becoming very very book smart, but not you know yeah. they they don't really so, have as many practical skills. So um so while we you know um, hold of that thought, um, we continue our conversation. But let's read some poems. Um, so Dr. Lawrence, we like to you know stay on to listen to some poems, and then we could if you have anything else you like to add. Or would you like to say uh, your feel, your thoughts, you know, for Leo? Because this is um, it's up to you what you like to share. Um, and so with you, James, too, uh, for Leo and Charlie. Remember that you were on the re- you were the ho- you're also the host of the radio show for Human Potential. So if you want to have something you like to share with that, and um, and then we maybe we could read a couple poems, and then we and then we always could go on take a break and have another conversation. Sounds good. All right, so um, James and Brian, do you have a poem available to read, so that so so they could so you can hear the poem? You can you can let Brian go first because I've been I've been sure. talking a while, I haven't gotten to a chance to yet. <laughs> sure, I have a poem ready that kind of fits in with what you've been talking about. It's about it's called Byron and it's about Lord Byron the poet who did not really fit in with any definitions of normalcy. And he was a great inspiration to me. So, perhaps you are guilty of a few excesses. I can live with that. Your indiscretions only added color to your flame. Brother of my soul and body, 
my heart reels to think how much I owe to you, to a world that hissed to the lame boy nothing. You dared to seize it all, to a world that chanted, you can't, you can't, you did, and and won a glory crown immortal with your words, and made beauty itself your own eager lover. Maker of archetypes, you created the icon magnificent that gave this lame boy the courage to dare, to strive, to become. And with me through it all was you, my silent partner. Byron, you squandered your life on that foolish plot to free the Greeks, but you never knew the truth. It was in your very living. You had broken chains on souls and set untold hostage free. Brian, you have a poem? I mean, James, you have a poem? Um, yeah, I actually, um, you know, I, I actually have here, uh, maybe for something different since we read, uh, I read a lot of my poems, uh, I actually have a pretty special book here that's actually, uh, it's called The Manio Shoe, and it's, uh, it actually means 10,000 leaves. It was actually a imperially decreed collection of poems uh, in ancient Japan that actually uh, was put together around uh, like around 1100 um, and it was uh, all the classical waka forms and all the poems up to that point pretty much of any note that they had in Japan and obviously it's translated from the Japanese to English I have a book that's about a thousand of them and I just like to read some of these sometimes because they kind of just remind me like how similar you know over a thousand you know a thousand years ago how similar people you know, we're writing back then about the same things that we're really kind of writing about today. So, and they're all they're all short, pretty much. So, uh, let me let me try to find a good one here. Okay. Uh, these don't usually have titles; they kind of just have numbers in in the book. Uh, so this one's uh, five twenty one. Over the spring field trails the mists, and lonely is my heart. Then in this fading light of evening, a warbler sings. Through the little bamboo bush close to my chamber, the wind blows faintly rustling in this evening dusk. That's not me. <laughs> well, what's, what was playing? What was that? I'm sorry. That was myself when it went off. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Got to turn it off. Hang on. <laughs> so, yeah, I, f- I find it interesting that people, you know, back then were writing a lot about the same things that we're writing about now. So, um, going with my, yeah. so uh, what I was going to say is like, um, for nonverbal and, uh, sometimes the language, sometimes nonverbal children, uh, even though they could say words, it's understanding or trying to express themselves without getting frustrated and 
sometimes that could be a challenging for them, just like a sensory overload. And if some nonverbal children cannot write, it's good to support because sometimes they say things that can be so poetically, and then you as a poet or a writer yourself, you could put that into language onto paper, and you sort of could, you could express and capture what they're thinking on on to on a story on on paper that makes you know you know this way for the reader and for the listener, then it gives it an understanding. But sometimes in the moment, it, it could be a challenge, you know, for people not understanding. Uh, like they could be scripted, or they could say things like a script, or they could add their own language to it, and it could be very interesting how they come up with that language, even though they're not for nonverbal. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. what, uh, why I'm saying that, I just wanted to say, as for a mother and daughter poem, so um, so I would um, sometimes. Um, that she wrote, said some things. I wrote it down and I put it into like a poem. And this is, and one of them I have here is called. Uh, we call the name of it. The poem is called "God Is Everywhere." So as I wrote the poem and I used some of her language, what she said into, and then I added to the poem. So God is is you, and God makes me brand new. The gifts I received from God, simple treasures, a swing that relaxes my nervous system, calms my body, floats my mind in certainty, love made for you and me, praying by rocking, living by loving, God is you, God is me, makes us both brand new, just pay attention, his words surround us all, I don't want to be alone, I believe in you, I believe in Jesus, I believe in us, God is me, God is us. And love for all, and, and that's and that's a mother and daughter poem. Oh, that's beautiful, Maria. Excellent. Thank you. So, so this is what I'm saying. So sometimes, even though um, they cannot write or do academically, it's it's very awesome to you could do it as a support. Sometimes you need to write it for them, or you need to write together as a team. Sure. Uh, and they need to have the credit. You know, it's awesome to give them credit w- along with you. Mm-hmm. That's very important Point out there because everybody needs different supports. So, uh, so Dr. Lawrence, what's your, um, if you like, if you want, if you want to share, or if you have something to you like to say, you can. And um, and then if we can read another poem. Well, I, I think um, uh, one interesting thing, uh, you know, uh, um, it's only been about um, a little more than 20 years since I became involved in the autism field, um, you know, and, and things have changed a lot since then. I, I remember it was a much smaller community we had back in, in these days, so back to the you know, sometimes uh, I reminisce with uh, Leonora and Charlie, and you know, we talk about the old days and we'll get very nostalgic, uh, thinking about uh, you know just the few of us who who, who were here. You know, to a lot of people who hadn't been diagnosed at the time, who uh, you know who who weren't really part of, of uh, but didn't really get to participate. So uh, you know, a lot has changed over the last. Uh, Two decades, and I certainly think Leonor and Charlie have contributed a lot in in uh, 
helping to get information out and helping uh, people to understand themselves and, and understand the family members or people they teach uh, and, you know, trying to make sense out of something that can be very difficult to understand. Um, yes, definitely. Um, anybody has a poem you'd like to read? I, um, yeah, I wrote this poem, um, and, you know, somebody share. Sometimes we either write poems of experiences or we write poems that somebody uh, shared their story, but you put it into your own words so you can capture it so that story don't get lost. So this is um, one of somebody's experiences, and I put it into a poem. And it's called um, The Haunted Storm of Entenmann. And that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N. It's from the Cross Cancer Institute. And this is what, uh, this is what, um, uh, I know it's supposed to be one more page. Hold on a minute. I'm trying to think. Of, you have a poem, Brian? I'm looking for another page. I thought it might be another page. I'm not sure. Sure, I'll read one while you're looking for that. This one is called The Open Road. Driving on an open road, it stretches out before me, stretches to infinity, arches, curves, bends, but continues without end, open to all possibilities and all destinations waiting. If I could choose my paradise, in my eternity I would take an open road, filling itself out into an unknown future. It stretches past the fields, past the trees, past the mountains, past the sun, to the sky, to the sky. Yeah, wonderful. All right, I'm going to read it. Uh, whenever I have you, I'm going to read it. It's called Cross Cancer Institute from the Haunted Storm of Entenmann. Your body's in a trance, withdrawn to the window as you glance quickly Black sky of darkness, the winds of fears lighten and thunder. The powerful storm haunted, fear of unknown, the question of thought passes through. Want to be connected with loved ones, the voice, torrential rains, the street flooded. Standing on the porch, watch tornado approach. Fingers are bleeding, torment effects of my six senses. The wounds a reminder, the lost lives, hearing the voices of children disheartened. Helping people in crisis as a first responder, the deep sounds awaken souls, wailing cries. Visualize images floating or flying objects soaring through the winds of tornado. Memories or tragedy never be forgotten, the black hole of life experiences with despair. Mind and body anguish, aches and pains overpowering, the searching for peace within deepness of core, the, my, the uh, core, the mirror reflections of pond replays the images you see. You hear echoes of reminder, the willing cries penetrates your inner soul that touches the heart. Mm. So, Wonderful. And this is what I put together, the, you know, what... Um, with that person's experience of his story, what he experienced through this tornado. And I put it together as a poem. 
I think I shared that, right, one of the shows? Yes, yes, wonderful. So, you know, uh, so that's all good. And um, any other poems to anybody else? Um, so, um, Dr. Lawrence, let's say parents of uh, how their education is or sometimes the family members, do you feel that also could have effect on, you know, the, your loved ones on the spectrum of how they learn as an educator? Yeah, I, I definitely... Uh, I definitely think so. Uh, you know, you grow up a certain way, you experience uh, things a certain way, and and uh, you know that's the way you learn things. You don't necessarily think about how other people may uh, learn differently. Uh, you know, the other thing is that education, uh, you know, in many ways actually is is more than than teaching just. Um, uh, you know the, the actual skills such as reading and, and writing um, and uh, mathematics. Uh, you know, you, education actually has a lot of, of social um, uh, teaching in it as well. Uh, so, for example, uh, in the United States and in, in North America, you might have a math problem that talks about uh, how Bob uh, goes out and uh, shovels snow away from. Uh, a house and he gets paid ten dollars and he puts it in the bank and you know he gets paid five uh, percent interest after a year then uh, you calculate how much uh, money he has so you know officially this is a, a math problem but uh, you know it teaches certain things it teaches you know the um, values of hard work and uh, thrift of, of saving rather than spending and uh, you know, there's also the expectation here that uh, I forget if I called him Bob or John, we'll call him Bob. Say Bob uh, did the shoveling here, so he actually gets to keep the money. In, in different uh, co- other cultures, uh, you know, the problem might have been about uh, how uh, um, the, you know, that's allowed the family to to buy certain things. Um, uh, you know, so you get a different lesson in some countries. Uh, you know, Islam does not permit uh, the uh, charging of interest, for example, so you couldn't have that. So uh, very often, uh, you know, there's a, a second part of the educational system here, you know, where you teach uh, a lot of values and, and, you know, the way you've been brought up and what you've been exposed to, uh, you know, is, is, is uh, an issue. And, you know, but there are also issues about... Uh, you know, what was the educational system you grew up in? Um, in, in some countries, there's more of an emphasis on memorizing and, you know, learning to, to think like, like others. Uh, while in the United States, we try to actually get people to take, uh, uh, develop their own opinions and, uh, you know, to, to think about that and, you know, to be creative um, you know, um, I remember a while ago, uh, you know, um, I was going with some MBA students to, to China and uh, we had some students who had been born in China who came to talk. And one of the uh, one of these students, uh, you know, actually said that, you know, uh, when she was something like, something like uh, in the fifth grade, she wasn't very old, but something like in the fifth grade, she actually got moved to a school for troublemakers because she was asking a lot of questions, you know, questioning authority. 
uh, you know, so if you've grown up in a strict kind of environment where that's not uh, permitted, you you might not allow that. You know, you might not encourage your, your children to uh, think differently. And um, you know, often people in the spectrum have a very different way of, of looking at things. Uh, and you, you might be upset when you think that here's somebody who's being silly and. Uh, you know, rather than, you know, this is just a very different way of thinking. And, and um, you know, so, yeah, that, that you know, clearly has, um, uh, that, that clearly has uh, some some implications. Uh, you know, also, of course, if there were things that you either um, did not find interesting or things that you might have been struggling with, uh, you might not uh, emphasize those things as much and and you know you may have difficulty understanding where somebody else has has trouble with something that seems very easy you know we we often hear about people on the spectrum who are really exceptionally good at certain things and then can't do other things as well um, you know uh, for example you know my handwriting uh, growing up uh, was not very legible and uh, I received a lot of criticism for that from, from teachers. Uh, you, you know, they probably felt I was sloppy and uh, just wasn't working hard on it enough. But uh, you know, so they they you know assumed that writing neatly was was not that difficult, which which was not the experience I had. So uh, the the experiences we've had and backgrounds definitely shape the way that we try to teach other people. Brian? Well, I mean, you know, I, like the point about like other, you know, other countries where they focus on memorizing versus America, like that's, that's something that I, I agree with uh, a lot because, th- you know, there's a lot of criticism in some cases about schools, you know, like in, you know, tests where, you know, you have to know, you, you have to know specific figures off the top of your head or you're not allowed to use a calculator in certain math classes and stuff like that. And, or, you know, especially with like, you know, common four becoming, you know, more commonplace, um, you know, you have to, you know, show work in X number of different ways uh, rather than just the way that happens to work for you. And the funny thing about it is though, is that it's one of those situations where the educational environment really doesn't mirror real life at all because, in almost every job you have, like engineering or architecture or anything where you're actually using complicated mathematics, um, of course they're using calculators. They don't, and they're not showing their work 18 different ways. And you know, there's a lot of cases where they don't know the numbers off the top of their heads, or you know, they just they might not even know the formula off the top of their heads. They just they need to get to the right answer, but they get there through a variety of tools and other ways. And sometimes they use computers. And, you know, so this idea that, you know, you, you have to know these things X way isn't, um, you know, necessarily beneficial, especially because when you look back at history and you think about some of the greatest mathematical minds, for example, you know, like Da Vinci, or you look at people like Isaac Newton or people who are really inventing things, they weren't sitting there memorizing times tables. They, you know, accumulated their, their knowledge of equations and formulas 
based, you know, in some cases inventing them based on problems that they were specifically trying to solve. Like, you know, if Da Vinci was trying to work on something like a glider for flight or something like that, he needed to have precise calculations to make it work, but his goal was to make that work. His goal wasn't sitting there, you know, memorizing numbers for the sake of memorizing numbers. And so the knowledge was accumulated through the act of doing. This is something like I think that they've actually realized in recent years when it comes to teaching foreign languages in schools, which, you know, for a long time the United States had a very abysmal record. Uh, they still still kind of do of teaching foreign languages to kids going through, you know, middle school and high school because they were, you know, they started you off with memorizing, uh, you know, conjugations rather than just doing it the way that you naturally would, which is just by speaking. And then you pick up, you know, the, the minutia along the way. And Brian? Yes, I agree. Education has to be more about create, being creative and thinking independently, which is, I, sometimes I think they're afraid of that. They don't want people to be too, create, too creative or too independent. But that's the only way the mind can really flower, is by letting loose that creativity. And what you thought about, like, for education when we learn it is... Um, Let's say if you have an idea and um, and you are very artistic, you know, very good at something, and how do you learn the knowledge knowing that you want to bring your idea and you want to get it out there and without other people taking your ideas away from you? So it's learning to trust, who to trust. And remember, um, like, you know, remember, what, um, what's that in the history? Not His name is... Tonson, what how you say his name? Tonson, didn't he invent something and it, it was take um hit and then the person he the wrong person he trusted and he that other person got credit for it. Yes, right? remember that? Yes, we remember thinking, Iron, um, uh, Iron, 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 so what? So I'm saying for the future schooling, yeah. we have in, to, in some cases, how though, Tesla actually gave the patents away. In some cases, yes, like it, true, yeah, because he invented so many things, and some of them he just wanted to be out there. But other things, yeah, he was ripped off by partners too. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel? Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go at this from... point. Uh, okay, thank you, Dr. Lawrence, for coming on to the show and sharing and um, you know and everything. You're welcome. And uh, it was great meeting you. Enjoy you have. <laughs> yeah, very nice to meet you all too. Yeah. Yeah. Have a good night. Have a good night. So um. So I say you know how do we um let's say for education for our future children is how do we learn we want our ideas out there like 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 he does like he did but not knowing who to trust so you really want his ideas out and whoever is willing to do that for him but not knowing he they're going to really take it from him and they taking the credit so it's like learning to get your ideas well, out that, there and the trust building trust cuz that that that's a very complicated thing overall because there's you know I mean there there obviously there is a thing called a patent and there is a thing called copyright so there are certain things in there to protect intellectual property 
but that also falls within specific parameters because there is also the moral question of just because you had an idea doesn't mean that it belongs to you. Um, you know, because there's plenty of, you know, normally, you know, the way that they determine a patent is just whoever had the idea first and created the idea first, you know, has the, the patents on the idea for X amount of time. Um, and then, you know, depending on the laws and the particulars, maybe that patent passes down to your family or maybe after you're dead, uh, you know, it goes back. It's kind of like why a lot of the great authors throughout history, a lot of their, their books and their stories exist in the public domain because they're no longer alive. And so they don't, there's no copyright held anymore. So that's why every time you go to a bookstore, you have the Barnes and Noble classic editions, you know, 50,000 times over, because that was basically free books for them to, you know, just publish because, you know, they didn't have to pay uh, royalties to anybody because they're so old. Um, You know, but there's, there's certain things that you can, um, you know, kind of put your name on and claim. And then there's certain things that you kind of can't because, you know, one thing that's kind of funny, for example, is Microsoft at one point tried to place a patent on the up and down cursor that you have on the side of a web page, <laughs> like when you're scrolling up and down. Um, and the court ruled that they can't patent that because that's just like a universal tool that everything, you know, every single browser, every operating system uses, you know. Uh, and there's some companies who get greedy out there and they try to patent things that they haven't even invented yet just because they have the idea. So, you know, you don't want to have, you know, something like that happening. On the other hand, you know, you don't want a big established company stealing an idea from some, you know, from a small startup either. So it's a very, you know, morally ambiguous question. Ben Franklin, um, you know, he was an inventor and he, but he gave away most of his inventions, just, you know, the plans to, to, the, to the public good, just because he also just kind of liked doing that. Like the Franklin stove, uh, you know, he came up with the design for it. And uh, then he just took the designs to a friend of his who, uh, you know, was a pottery, you know, potter maker and a blacksmith. And, um, you know, he gave it to them and said, hey, will you make, you know, make a bunch of these? I'll advertise them in the paper that I run. And he owned the newspaper in Philadelphia. So he just put out an ad in the paper for the thing and then said, if you want to go to, you know, this, uh, you know, particular, uh, you know, shop. And, you know, they sold. And, you know, the, the uh, of course, you know, these guys were his friends. So they tried to, they paid him a percentage of what they sold, but he actually donated that to the public library company because he, well, I mean, he was rich at that point. He didn't really have any need for the money, but he also just felt like he wanted this idea to be out there. And so he actually sent the, you know, the plans for it to, you know, blacksmiths in other cities so that, you know, and, and he, he had like a very big interwoven publishing network between lots of family members and stuff too. So he was putting out plans and advertisement for it uh, in, you know, about like 11 out of the 13 colonies at that point, which is how it got so popular, but he wasn't, he wasn't seeing like royalties every time somebody made a Franklin stove, although he did get credit for it because it made him pretty famous. So it also depends on what you're looking to get out of it. If you're looking to do like good for, you know, mankind or humankind, are you looking for just recognition or are you looking for, you know, financial remunerations? They're all. So in order, in order to really answer the question that you have there, first you have to define exactly what it is you're aiming to get out of what. (laughs) Interesting. So, um, yeah, I, I just, that's what I learned, you know, about this man, um, just, you know, interesting, uh, um, you know, they thought somebody else did the work and he did it, yeah. So, um, that's our history, you know, and, um, they finding today, um, there was a couple young boys on the spectrum as smart as, or even more smarter than, um, um, you know, 
uh, eyes, eyes, uh, um, you know, you know, of him, you know, when they said his mouth, and they didn't realize that. So, um, so you want to read another poem? You want to read another poem? Hi, Maria. I'll read another poem, and then I'll okay. be saying goodnight after that. Thank you so much for having me on tonight. It was fascinating listening to it. This is a poem, Roadside Shrine, a spectacular statue of the Saint of Peace. Kuan Yin sits on the roadside for sale, and more than I can afford this day. But that beautiful, loving face smiles down on me and all who pass, offering all blessings without question, without discrimination, without reward. It belongs in a shrine, I think. In my mind, I can see it there. In my mind, I light a candle. In my mind, I can smell the incense. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, Maria, well, thank you so much. It's always okay, wonderful welcome. coming on. Thank you so much. And James, wonderful welcome. to hear you. Yeah, great, great hearing so James, you again, you look- Brian. We'll talk soon. We're going to welcome another guest, Tim Polithia. He's a, um, a playwright, and he is also the host for Radio Drama. Welcome. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Great. So, yeah, so say, say some and to listen and um, read more poems. Hi, Tim. Uh, hello, Maria. Hello, listener. Is James there, too? I'm here. Yeah, James. Yeah. Although I've, I've been getting I've been getting kicked on and off because there's heavy thunderstorms where I am right now, so the sometimes I'm getting booted, but I keep trying to come back. So. <laughs> okay. Well, it's nice to see you, Maria, and both of you actually. Yes, you. <laughs> you too. <laughs> um, definitely, we had a, a, a special guest came on, um, Dr. Lawrence. And he mm-hmm. shared, and we were talking about um, the topic of nonverbal autistic people. So we had a lot of nice conversation about that and his thoughts, and then um, and talking about the different things, you know, of uh, that I mentioned in the beginning for opportunities, you know, mm. for Leo and Charlie. Because um, right now, say uh, um, we're gonna for now into the end of June, we'll have different special guests coming on and to dedicate these, you know, radio shows to to Leo and Charlie and also Anthony and for the, Anthony's inspiration, you know, for everything they did with Anchor. Well, that's a great, well, it's a great way to, uh, re, and, to re, and to re and to revere them and their well and uh, everything they've done for the for the for the autistic community. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So, you like do you like to share? Oh, you you want me to read? Yeah, you can, or um, James could read something. Oh, for oh the all right. Oh, okay. Well, well, it's not well, what I've got here is not really a poem per se, but it does reference a poem actually, or reference a a book of uh, a book uh, that that is pretty much poetry written in poetry form. So uh, this is something I came up with. Uh, it's a, it's more of a performance piece that I, that I've been writing called Peace Slash Peace, as in the first uh, it's spelled P E A P E A C E, and then slash P I E C E. That's the title of it, and there are going to be two characters in it. 
the opportunist to the damned soul and the evangelicist, the right the righteous. So uh, I'm just going to share the first scene, and I've only got the first scene done because there's it has dialogue from the opportunist, and uh, I'll just I'll just share 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 it and and uh, listen very carefully for those for the listener because there is a re- there is a reference to a specific poem, and you'll hear it through the dialogue. And then and then I'll talk about it a bit afterwards. You ready, Maria? Yes. What about you, James? You ready? Um, I think he got. We lost his call. Well, that's all right. But I'll just I'll just start. Scene, scene one. Stage starts out barren, empty. Fade on, single orange stage light in top left corner. Cue sound effects. Locusts buzzing. Figure is illuminated, yet still obscured. The opportunist. We cannot ascertain the complete details, i.e., the face, or the skin color, or the gender. And the opportunist speaks. I have been granted the privilege of peeking into the future and espied a herd mentality. New generations of sheep abraying at their shepherds, tearing the flora and fauna asunder with their teeth to satiate a ravenous appetite. (laughs) Gratification flows through me, a wellspring, (laughs) peering into the window of this house of Usher, while the residences chant mantras, recite passages aiding in their domicile's downfall. A fate inscribed eons ago to its ancestor. (laughs) A cycle inscribed from centuries ago, absorbed and broke down by time's innards. (sighs) As, As destined, their ignorance let the crack in this foundation race from roof to lakeside. What was once stable, within and without, collapses in a heap, yet they still turn on each other, conflict, combat, conquest, prideful of oblivion, long after the debris buries them alive. I denied long ago to partake in the first incarnation's absolutes. For this, in death, I'm cast here into the circle of hell. Flesh a feast for the locusts, maggots, and worms, washing it down with my blood. <laughs> Opportunist lectures, so they decreed of my character. Now I room with souls of a similar damnation. Aimed at this privilege of forewarning, bearing witness to cast-offs in the living realm. It all began with the quarrel between heaven and hell, God and Satan, where those of divine stature in the hierarchy turned cold, turned cold and heartless to reason. Skepticism and balanced and balance proclaimed as heretical witchcraft. 
<laughs> so it will be with this incarnation. One side exiling their opportunists, cast them, cast them out. We are the enemy, the thorn in their side, the fly in their ointment, profaning their codes of morality and values. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. oh, it tickles and tantalizes my pleasure spots. Vindication. Espying this pattern stuck on eternal repeat. Oh, the pendulum swinging to and fro. No sentiment. <laughs> oh, no peace. Well, it appears their their evangelical has chosen to preach to the masses what futility and folly. Not of not of them, no, but of me and my principles. <sighs> the cycle spins on. Fade out orange light. Pause. Fade out locust buzzing. Pause. End scene. Very good, Tim. Yep. Now, now I'm going to ask. Do you? Now I'm going to ask Maria. What do you think uh, it's referencing? Huh? What do you think the opportunist is referencing? What is referencing in this first scene? <laughs> Interesting. Yes. Um... Well, I'll give you a few hints. Can I? I'll give you a few hints. First is the name, the opportunist. Now, the second hint is, well, let's let me go here. Here, flesh a feast. He's in a cir- a circle of hell, and and this in this circle of hell, he's a his flesh is a feast for the locusts, maggots, and worms, and they and and his blood as well. That's another hint. So. This, and remember, and remember, he's also referencing uh, the, in, the, in the past time a quarrel between heaven and hell, God and Satan. So he has like a um, okay, like a dual personality, um, an optimistic um, uh, opportunist is that he has his plot. He knows everything. He knows. He has all. Yet he's damned. He knows everything. Yet he's and damned, and also, and also Maria, Maria, there's a note, notice how many how many times he changed emotions, nine times, and in this and what he, and there's and then in this circle of hell there's nine circles. So it's nine circles of different emotions and different characters emerging from this man of opportunists. So he has a definitely a multiple personalities. Well, more I'm talking about the reference. Okay, I'll get all right. I'll, I'll say the I'll say what the reference is. This entire scene is a is a reference to Dante's Inferno. Okay, and can you share what that is? Um, what are those words? You well, said? it's a it's actually a it's a play written by uh, da, Dante, and well, not a play. Sorry, it's a poem written in uh, written by an Italian author named. Sorry. Sorry, my laptop fell there. Yeah, it's 
written by Dante A-L-I-G-H-I-E-R-I. And it's, it's from the Divine Comedy. The Inferno is a, tri- it's a trilogy. The Inferno is the first part, the Purg- Purgatorio, second part, and the Paradiso, third part. That's an, and the first one, Dante's Inferno, it does, is, well, it's all about a journey through the, through the circles of hell. So yes. wonder the why he had so many pers- why he had so many emotions. Hmm. And also, I could add to why he has a lot of emotions. Yeah, I could I could add to it. It's up to interpretation, but uh, that's basically what I what I wanted to share because it does reference poetry. Inferno is poetry. Uh, okay, that's very good. Um, so. What would you like to share, you know, as Nob says, a screenwriter? And those were opportunity that you shared with us and to my interview that, that you know, your, that Leo talked to you and, and you also got this amazing opportunity to, mm-hmm. show, to showcase your, um, your writing abilities to perform live. On well, radio. yeah, I'm, I'm forever I'm grateful for that because, you know, I mean the the very idea of radio drama. It's like I'm I'm mostly the host and I do my and I present my plays and my radio dramas. But actually, as, as far as the concept is, as far as who 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 came up with the concept, it was Leonora herself. I mean, she remembers play and plays from her from her era, from when she was young, from her generation. But the old time radio plays, and she and she thought it'd be a good medium for my writing, and so. She gave me the idea, and the first thing I did was do uh, the silent, the silent affliction. Presented that as a well, read the script, and from there I, I, I just mined a lot of my stories and turned them into radio plays. And that's uh, basically what, what the uh, that's what the radio that's what the inception of radio drama was. And you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm actually, uh, and again, I, I really. I really uh thank, I really have to tip my hat to Lee and Leo. I mean Leonora. I mean she's well it's not just radio drama. She's she's always been very supportive of my writing and my talent. She actually was very encouraging. Like very very encourage, encouraging. I remember one time when we when we talked about uh, my old old writings like uh, she was she was actually very surprised that one time I I kept a copy of uh, the sequel to The Sound of Affliction and just lying around in a school high school desk, and it was stuck with chewing gum and all that. And like, and she she actually encouraged me, like, like Tim, you've got you've got to you've got to you've got to you got to save your running. You got to you got to you got to make it precious. And I mean, she's she was very like she was very uh, well. You could say she was a mentor in that respect. Yeah, and it encouraged you to continue with your talents and your writing. And I think mm. it wasn't like too, um, the, your uh, your first one, your first opportunities writing a play um, at school that helped you um, to share your story and gave an insight to other children who are not who are not nice, who are bullies themselves. And they learned yeah. something from you. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I uh, yeah. I still I still recall as if I was actually center stage, and well, not really center stage, but center 
that drama drama room stage. I still remember the and when we put put on that uh, when we put on the sound affliction as as his final exam, uh, exam the rupturous the the eruption the erupting applause and and uh, there were I think there were a few tears as well and uh, I even got a I even got a hug from hug from the uh, from one of my uh, from one of the people from one of the one of the uh, girls who played uh, one of the one of the girl characters in it. Hi, hi, Tim. Um, um, James is back with us. Hey, James. Hello. Yeah, like I said, the uh, the weather here is making the the signal sometimes, uh, you know, go out. So. Yeah. Well, any well, anyway, we're just yeah. talking about her, uh, about right, about uh, Leonora's influence right. and yeah, and influence and in encouraging me to keep. To uh, really showcase it, and you know the radio drama and all that. And I, I, I just gotta say, Jane and James, it's uh, again. I, I have to tip my hat to her. I mean, it's. Uh, I think she was the first. Uh, well, I had my drama teacher, but uh, I didn't see like you know it was uh, so I didn't see him all the time, and uh, and and school was and high school was ending, and then so it wasn't like he couldn't fully men uh, fully mentor me into the to fully and it was Leo, it was actually when i met when i talked with leo and i i i been and i joined up with anka that uh, i got that mentorship for my writing yeah that, that's a very um, important thing awesome. for a writer mhm especially because like when it comes to writing cuz i mean you know writing and publishing writing and writing workshops is pretty much what I do for a living. And one of the things that is very disheartening to me is that there's a lot of writing instructors out there who people will take their courses and will never write again afterwards because they didn't receive encouragement. Instead, they just received like, you know, basically, you know, bullying in a sense from a lot of, you know, especially, um, you know, because I used to teach college too. And there was, you know, at, at the college I taught at the professor who, was the poetry guy before me, people who I actually took a class of his when I was an undergrad a bunch of years earlier, and people would, like, take his class, and he had a very strict, you know, very rigid idea of what poetry was, you know, in that case, and that's just, that's just in poetry, and in prose and in drama, it's an entirely, you know, it could be even worse in some cases, but he had very strict ideas, and people who didn't fall within those parameters or fit into that cookie-cutter mold that he had in his head, uh, they didn't, they, you know, didn't get good grades, they didn't get encouragement, and, you know, their work was basically ripped apart. Um, you know, there's a big difference between, you know, constructive criticism or, you know, just, uh, you know, you know, just being constructive in terms of suggestions and, you know, helping develop versus being judgmental. And sadly, in writing, there's, there's a lot of the other side going on. So finding somebody, you know, like Leo, who's really, uh, you know, just all out encouraging, uh, you know, that's a real, it's a real gem. Yeah, to, yeah. There's a difference between uh, gui- guidance, and guidance, and throwing fog in their eyes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Um, so, even though we get opportunities from Leo, sometimes we get opportunities from each other on of hmm. the people on the spectrum from each other. Because that's also important. So sometimes um, one autistic person, like say with him, he's a, a screenwriter, 
then I got an opportunity to, to work with him as an actress uh, and to 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 learn to you know for the voice acting and to be part of his shows and that was also an amazing experience for me and I do thank you Tim for that I was grateful. Yeah, where you were you I must say Maria you're you're very de- you're very dedicated and dedicated when it comes when it comes to that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. So so, when, you anyway, know, so anyway, anyway Maria I got I got I got to go it's been a been a long day and uh, just got back from my niece's preschool graduation, so uh, got to rest up. Oh, congratu- congratulations! Thank you. You you Pretty take care, okay? Yes, I do. Yeah, you take care, night. Maria. Thank you for sharing. Yes, I will. Yeah, good night, James. Hi, um, hi, Tim. It's good seeing you again. Or talking to you rather. <laughs> yeah, so long. Yeah. And James, he also was a, a, a recipient for poetry as a award winner. And maybe you could share some of that experience, you know, a, a little bit about Leo and how you got your, as a poet, you were an award winner. Uh, actually, I never received the award for poetry. I actually got the award for entrepreneurship. Oh, yeah, that's for, right. That's right. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, so how was, uh, yes, so and how awards, was, how was. They, they give so many awards to so many different people, sometimes it's hard to keep track of because there's so many amazing, talented people in the ANCA organization. Yes, that's right. I now remember that's what you got it for, definitely. And um, so maybe you could share a little insight about that and, and how you, uh, and maybe give a little, you know, inspiration words, you know, for, uh, you know, for Leo. And Charlie? Um, yeah, well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm trying to go back and remember, like, how I first met Leo and I first met her over, over a radio show similar to this. Um, it may have actually been your radio show that I met her on because this was uh, – in fact, I think it was because – I don't remember what it was called back then. I think it was – like, you had one that was called Mosaic, and I think this was before that even. But there was uh, – you know, because, uh, you know, when Perspectives – poetry concerning autism and other disabilities uh, was fresh. Uh, you know, I was getting invited to do a lot of talks and, you know, radio shows and stuff like that all about that. And one of them, Leo, happened to be on. And we just got into a very good conversation just about, you know, autism and, you know, the plight of autistics in general. And it was just a lot of fun. And then she invited me to come on and be like a special guest on, uh, you know, once a month on this other radio show that she did. And then we got to have a lot of good conversations and talk even more. And then she invited myself uh, and a couple of others to actually host a radio show for a while, which we did for over two years, which was really, you know, a good experience. And as for the award, um, you know, I, I, you may have been one of the people who nominated me. I think you, you did several times actually. And so did, a, you know, a few others. And it was, you know, it was, it was just, uh, you know, it was a nice uh, feather in the cap. I mean, it was nice to be recognized for, you know, doing what you do. I mean, that's obviously not why I do what I do, but, you know, it's it's nice to, to especially in, in, in what I do with, um, you know, because the, the award was for uh, entrepreneurship. And um, I'm in a very unique business where it, it is a, it's a business that requires a business brain, but I'm always working with creative type people. And, um, you know, creative type people sometimes, you know, they're all, they're individuals and they don't really fit into, you know, molds. Like we've been talking about this whole conversation and, you know, sometimes when you're trying to do business with uh creative type thinkers, 
it, it doesn't always, um, you know, th- there's a lot of balancing act to do because it doesn't always fit so well. So it's like I have to kind of communicate between the two worlds. And so some days it's it's really like it's really frustrating. So, uh, you know, to have people out there who really appreciate what it is, you know, that, that you do is, of course, uh, is, of course, wonderful. And, you know, the great thing about the, uh, you know, the Anka Awards in general is that for many of the individuals who get those awards, those are, you know, in a lot of cases, the first time that those people are being recognized for a particular talent, whereas there might have been other people, you know, people in their own lives, uh, you know, or their schools or their institutions or even their families who don't, uh, you know, quite appreciate or understand, you know, a lot of the talents and the good things that they do. So having, you know, an institution like Anka and the award ceremony to actually highlight that for a lot of people, uh, you know, it could be def- it could be infinitely, you know, valuable because, uh, you know, once somebody gets a little bit of, you know, affirmation for what they do, it's a real it's a real confidence booster, and then that makes them, you know, a little bit more confident to keep going with what they're doing, and then you know, reach new heights and explore avenues they hadn't before. You know, sometimes a little bit of encouragement goes a really long way. Um, definitely, and. You know, and and it's you know hosts a lot of uh, truth in the story what you're saying because sometimes families do not understand uh, about the individual on the spectrum, and you know so that adds to it and and it's not it's more than that it's about their gifts about the talents they and being supported and being positive all of those are very and you know very important for people. And that's for any. Oh, yeah. That's for any human. That's just being human. It's the oh yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you know, no, nobody. You know, every everybody by themselves is you know just matter. I mean, it's really you know what we do with other people. You know, and we're all we're all on some level social beings, even if we're socially awkward. We all you know most people. There's I mean there's exceptions, but most people, even the ones who you know boast about how oh I don't need anybody. Um, you know, on some level, they really do, because without, you know, other other people to share living with, then, you know, it's really, you know, the world's kind of lonely. So, you know, we need each other to kind of help bring each other to our potential. I mean, you take, you know, one person sitting in a room by themselves all day. What are they really, you know, what potential are they really going to reach? I mean, maybe they'll read a lot of books and maybe they'll practice a lot of, you know, art or music or something and get really good at something. But, you know, if there's no ability to share that with you know, the world or do anything with it, you know, how much potential can you really reach? Yes, and, you know, it's, you know, it's been a very, you know, with Anchor, it's been a very, you know, extraordinary journey with them. And, you know, they start off with Anchor, you know, and Anchor Magazine and the International Autist People's Awards and, for a couple of days, and then went to three days the convention, and now it's about six days. So the last few years is up to six days the convention, and it's become worldwide, and a lot of people come from uh, all over and meeting the different people with their different gifts and their different talented, and also bringing their culture. And in yeah. a lot of them, you see also a lot of them that experience, you know, that Leo and Charlie experience too, is a lot of them are some of the families and parents are very supportive of their their children um, with autism and their gifts. And, and you can see from some of the photos that, you know, 
how they, you know, they have like a performance and they show their work, and so they do different, you know, methods to get their, to get help their kids get promoted and show their work all over the world. Oh yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you know, some sometimes, you know, in a lot of what we talk about, sometimes parents tend to get accidentally vilified in a way as being, you know, unsupportive and not really understanding their kids. And, you know, in some cases, that's true. I mean, and there's a lot of, there is a lot of parent-oriented writing out there about autism where it's really trying to make things better for the parent and not for the autistic individual. But there's, you know, the other side of that coin is there are a lot of parents out there who are amazingly supportive of their autistic children. And, you know, it's hard for the parents, too, to, you know, because they're trying to get their kid, you know, an education or they're trying to get their kid recognized. And then, you know, a lot of the institutions that we talked about earlier, you know, the cookie-cutter, you know, institutions that, you know, judge people based on how well they fit in into a specific paradigm. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're telling the parents all the time that, oh, your kid is, you know, your, your kid's a bad kid. Your kid, uh, you know, can't do what the other kids can do, you know, and that, that can be incredibly frustrating for the parents also. I mean, you know, my mother went through that in a lot of cases going through school because, they, you know, they didn't really know what the heck, what the heck to do with me, um, you know, because I was always – I would always do really well on all the standardized tests. I do, I, I do so well that they always thought I was cheating. Um, and one of the problems is I never wanted to really show my work because I was a very, you know, mental thinker. And I didn't really like, especially in math, I never really liked to write it all out because it was actually, it was, it was easier for me to come up with the right answer than it was for me to explain how I got there. And so they always think like you're cheating. And so, you know, sometimes they would put me in really advanced classes. Other times they put me in really, really slow classes, depending on, you know, what they thought I was at that time. And my mother, you know, and father were very supportive of me. And they, they knew that like I had, you know, abilities and they knew I had potential and, you know, they were constantly fighting with, you know, the teachers who were telling them that, you know, I was a bad kid. I was a troublemaker that I wasn't fitting in and blah, blah, blah. So I've seen that side of it too. So, you know, and if my, you know, if uh, something like the Anka festival had existed back in the, you know, the really early 90s when I was growing up, you know, when I had been involved in that, I could see how that would have been a very good thing, you know, for my parents just to see, you know, their kid, uh, you know, get some kind of recognition for something. So, you know, that's, a, that's another service that it does on top of everything else. Um, yes, and it's been around, you know, and it's been around for at least 16 years or more. And, and it's always it's been there. They did a lot of different things, and now there's Anchor uh, Film Festival, and um, and when they went to International Autism Awards in another country, in Scotland, and Edinburgh, and um, that's when they, you know, they promote it and they uh, filmed the film, and it showed how autistic people can have a conversation with an autistic person, and and that's uh, what's really about, and it's amazing because. You know, in the film fest, um, they in any any um, film, uh, even the awards ceremony they have for the films or the documentaries, usually they choose. They usually will, will say the top four or the top five um, or winners to show at the at the awards ceremony. And um, we were we were we were um, we actually. Um, we were in the category of the first few, uh, the ones they choose in the first few, so that, that we were a part of it, and it was just that was an amazing experience to see that you know anchor being there for that to be to be to be you know acknowledged that way. Yeah. 
and um, well, it's you know, it's it's a lot of different things. Uh, um, and like I said, what a lot of different stories we said before is it depends on, the, and you know, it's too is sometimes. Like we're talking about how the teachers things and what happened with you and your and your family and when they're telling you family about you you didn't fit in. Same thing, or they'll tell some parents that their child is too severe autistic and what is severe, you know, is so that's not understanding right there because then they're not gonna think anything and some parents when they get that news, they don't think anything highly of their child. So they don't think their child could do any more of what they actually said. So they actually believe what they're saying. And and that's not always true. It's been proven that, you know, they are able to do more as they got older for some of them. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, you know, again, like I say, like, you know, not not everybody has the ability to do everything, but the ways in which we come to those conclusions uh, you know, in the mainstream and the way that we, you know, absolutely hold to those conclusions is really ridiculous because, you know, the, the, the way that we determine who, you know, who's capable and who's not, it are they're very limited, you know, the tests are very limited, they're very narrow, they're very focused on specific things, and, you know, they they don't really cover the entire base of intelligence or ability, so to, you know... I mean, you could you could say that, you know, maybe, you know, your kid is not right for this school or maybe your kid, you know, isn't going to learn this way. We need to find another way. You know, that could be perfectly valid. But to, you know, be like I say, oh, your kid can't do X, Y and Z based on, you know, very finite and very limited tests. You know, that's that, that's really just, you know, coming to a conclusion without complete information. You know, scientifically, that's, you know, that's just a faulty experiment. <laughs> you know, that's coming to a faulty study. <laughs> Yes, and um, you know, like we're saying, sometimes people believe what they hear. Sometimes. Yeah, well, people and do that then, a lot with doctors and with, you know, people who are professionals. People, you know, some people don't listen to professionals enough, and other people listen to them way too much. You know, because <laughs> even though this might be, you know, they're. You know, because there's some people, they go to a doctor and it's like, you know, well, what's wrong with me? It's like, well, you're eating 17 Big Macs a day. Oh, that there's nothing wrong with that, you know. So maybe those people should listen to the doctor a little bit more. But, you know, then there's, you know, other people who, you know, they they just take the word for it without ever getting a second opinion or without ever applying any common sense or really thinking about it. You know, because, you know, doctors, professionals, they can be wrong just like anybody else. I mean, you know, it may, it may be what they're, you know, designed to do, but they don't know everything. So a second opinion, a third opinion, there's nothing wrong with, you know, getting those. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and that is, you know, that is, you know, correct in a lot of the ways. And unfortunately that affects, you know, how, uh, how people perceive their lives afterwards or after high school. And where and where, and the direction it goes, because you know they could probably do a lot more, you know what you know what people thought when they're you know growing up as a young person, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's you know the different opportunity there too, and um, and you know it's. 
and support us. A lot, a lot of stuff, and we're going to move on. And um, You know, there's a flip side to that, though, too, because, you know, again, in, in American culture, we have this idea that, like, you know, if you don't show incredible talent in something by the time you're done with high school, you know, maybe in some cases college, well, then you're just like a lost cause. It's like, you know, there's, you know, think of how old you are when you leave high school or how old you are when you leave college. There's a lot of life left after that, you know, and a lot of years. And it may be true that most people just get a job and then they kind of stop learning, or at least mostly learning for, you know, another like 40 years or 50 years until they retire. And then they start picking up arts and crafts and hobbies again. But, um, you know, you have a lot of time after you're done with high school. And, and the truth of the matter is a lot of the, you know, there's studies that show a lot of like the valedictorians and the salutorians and all the ones who did really good in, in high school, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily go as far as everybody expects them to for the very reason of they did good in a structured environment where creativity wasn't so much valued as, you know, being able to conform and fit to a set pattern and schedule. And so in the real world, you know, where, you know, things like creativity and innovation matter a lot more, you know, you're not going to, you, you know, you're like, this is why a lot of entrepreneurs or people who start their own businesses or start their own, you know, organizations, you know, a lot of them didn't necessarily always do well in school because they were thinking, you know, more outside of the box. So same thing with a lot of CEOs, people who get into companies and then rise through them, same thing. And, you know, there's yeah. also... Yeah, there's also a lot of people who didn't really display their potential or their talent until way later in life, and then it just, you know, exploded. I mean, like Colonel Sanders, you know, founder of KFC, he didn't start selling fried chicken until he was in his late 60s. He worked at a gas station most of his life, and then one day he's like, hey, why don't I try to sell some chicken? And that's, the, that's when he came up with the idea after all those years? Yeah. An interesting story, and then yeah, he became, and, you know, he, and then he became successful. Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, he was working hard all through his seventies, you know, uh, you know, getting stores, you know, getting places to, uh, you know, license uh, his particular chicken recipe, and he didn't actually open up his own store until like his mid seventies, if I remember correctly. Like, I mean. Don't quote me on that. I don't know the exact age, but I know that he was. It was in his sixties. He started trying to be his own boss. So it was, uh, you know, not not everybody blooms, you know, in the first act. Sometimes there's there's a lot of acts in play. Sometimes it's the third act where the excitement really happens. And um, is he still he's still around today, or he's or he's? Uh, no, Colonel Sanders died a long time ago, but. Uh, I mean, KFC is still around, obviously. So, <laughs> uh, so it's a, it's a two different company. Okay. Well, no, it's, it's the same it company. It's just, no, it's it's All the right. same company. It's his company. He's just, you know, he's not around anymore. So, you know, it's owned by other people now. Uh-huh. But so, you, know, you walk into um, KFC, his, you know, his picture's on the wall still. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's. That's a good thing because he's the one that got it started and and is a very good inspiration because even though he got started later in in his sixties, like you said, it doesn't mean 
that, you know, you, you still have ability to think, even in your 60s, you still could come up with creative ideas. And, you know, and you can still come up with more theories that actually could, like I said, like, it can make it work, like with it. And finally it clicked for him, and um, he became successful in his life. Yeah, I mean, look at J.K. Rowling. She was living on welfare, you know, um, at, you know, in her, you know, middle-aged, uh, you know, a single mother, and then she wrote Harry Potter. And, and look what happened. She became a successful writer. And so and, yeah. and you go on a lot of stories. Because also, too, is like you were saying like uh, earlier, the agencies are out there. The, also, too, is sometimes if you don't, even though you could be very, have a lot of wisdom and you could be very educated and you could be very smart, but if it doesn't show on paper, they don't they don't think highly of they don't think highly that you can do anything, but it should, but you but why you don't got services why you don't have this but you have your IQ is lower um, so a lot of times these a lot of people don't understand that you could be smarter what actually shows on paper, or and then sometimes yeah. people it could be vice versa sometimes people could be such a high IQ. But they can't take care of themselves. They can't do too much for themselves. So it depends oh, yeah. on what era of life, you know what I mean? The areas of life, you know? Yeah, well, humans in general are very bad at grasping the whole picture of pretty much anything. I mean, we've, especially, you know, these days when people are so busy, there's so much to do, you know, there's a hustle and bustle. People, you know, like everything gets reduced to like, you know, a one paragraph description, if you're lucky, because, you know, you got to fit everything into its nice, neat category. you got to, you can't take more than X amount of time on something. And, you know, there's a lot that's missed in that regard. I mean, you know, it's like, if you spend enough time with an individual, you can get a good sense of their strengths and their weaknesses just by being around them, just by observing them, by getting to know them. There's so many, you know, so many kids in school you know, their teachers, you know, I mean, and not to discredit all the teachers because the teachers have a really hard job. They're managing like 30 kids, you know, on average, and some of them can be a handful, uh, especially when they're young. But, you know, because, uh, you know, the, the, the instructors are limited and because of their resources are limited, you know, they don't always get to spend enough time with, you know, individuals to really be able to properly assess them. And, you know, there's a saying in business um, you know, that sometimes your best assets don't show up on your balance sheet because when you look at, you know, when businesses are judged, and this is a reason why so many of the, you know, the most successful businesses in the world, um, you know, would have, you know, started off, they didn't get a loan from the bank or people didn't think it was going to work because they're looking at the numbers on the sheet. They're looking at like how much money you started out with, what your profit margin is. They're looking at, you know, your, your income, you know, your, uh, your expenditures, your income. They're looking at the numbers all on the sheet, but they're not looking at things like, say, who your CEO is and, you know, their ability to, um, you know, really uh, corner a market or their ability to advertise or market really well. They're not looking at, you know, somebody's ability to innovate or they're not looking at the, you know, all the skills of the employees or the people working for it. So there's so much that when you're, you're judging life by what's on the page, there's so much that you're missing. You know, a lot of the big companies like, you know, in the beginning, you know, Apple, you know, that was just two guys in their garage, and a lot of the people didn't think that they were going to do anything. They started, you know, a lot of the companies at the time wouldn't work with them. They were selling, they started selling directly to electronic stores 
because the stores who actually dealt with people buying products realized that, you know, people want what these people have to offer. And it wasn't so much later that, you know, they started getting investors and, you know, bigger, you know, people to actually sign on. Um, yeah, so, so, so that's where, you know, like it could be in any different part of life, you know. Some people could be very good reading books, but they just cannot move fast enough in the job, and they don't, and then you got people in that job don't understand, you know, if you, you could do all these things, why you can't do the simple things? So for the other people, the simple things is, you know, it could be abstract, and for others, could you know, it comes easy. So it all depends on, you know, what exactly how it is. Somebody could be an engineer, but they don't have the concept of understanding how to drive a car. So for others, it comes simple. They understand it right away. And for others, it, they don't know how to do it. But they could do these major concepts of numbers. And, you know, that might seem challenging for us, but for them, it's, that's their that's their gift. It comes natural to them. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's just how it is. So I think it's you know, it's we need to as the future goes on for our future kids, it, we need to move away from that. We need to move away from that model. It's not about um and move away and looking at where does this individual need help, if they do need help and or if people don't need help then that's all good. They could take care of themselves. Yeah. This way, it leaves more positivities in people's lives, you know? Yeah, definitely. So, so I wrote, um, so James, I wrote this poem in April, and it's called Poetic Energy. Breathe energy, wisdom of inspiration, teaching me alpha beaches, reciting within, beyond depth of extreme deep emotions, Pours open upon my paper, amazing poetry. Very nice. That's my new poem. Cool. And thank you. So that's what I have there. And um, so I have, you know, you know, for me, I, you know, I am very grateful and thankful for Leo and Charlie for my opportunities. Because I had, you know, I had, you know, a lot of opportunities for learning, become a host, and then, I mean, co-host, and then learning to become a co-host. And then I learned to eventually be a host, learning to, you know, get people to come on to the show. And then months later, I learned how to write my own, I had to learn uh, my own, you know, scripts for the shows. Yeah, I know. And then I did, then I yeah, and then I did other. Say it again. I'm saying yeah, it's it's great, and they 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 do uh you know they do a lot of good work for a lot of uh you know a lot of people. Oh yes, and um, and um, you know sometimes you know um, you know they're very they're just they're very it comes natural to them, and they're very good business people. They know what they, they're how to do, and they know. You know, and you know, for them it comes, you know, natural to them. And like I said, even though they might give you opportunities and then you move on, and they give other people opportunities and they might 
change things around or might not do something anymore, then there's opportunities for somebody else to, you know, who just is new to the awards ceremony. So it's it's always doors opening for opportunities and 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 it brings new um, new growth to to the anchor and 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 the international to people's awards. You know, and Leon Child they travel to other countries to to visit, to meet them and to have they have the, their performance to showcase the um, artists on the spectrum their artwork or their their gifts and um or they model the clothing that they they just you know, they paint beautiful things on their clothing and and that becomes an entrance to the community. Yeah. And then I and then I did then I so then I became supported host and then I also I wrote scripts for another person for the shows because it was difficult for the for that person to write their own scripts for their own shows so I did that too and then then you know eventually other shows came emerge or some I chose the name change you know like I went through. The, um, the, the artistic artist show to music, to music, um, to lifestyles. Yeah, there sure have been a lot money. of shows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we went through that. A lot of shows. We had that. We had many different names. We had um, the. I wrote. I wrote scripts for the teenager show. I. Um, we had that. Talk about the. You know what's out there for what they need to look for in school and what to do, um, or after-school work, um, you know, um, radio shows for reading poetry and theater, and uh, we're talking about another person's autism organization, what they do for the community for autism. And, you know, and then all of a sudden, and then the... Leo um, opened up the doors to share her knowledge of the autism paradigm, and um, and that made amazing, sh- um, you know, amazing radio shows there, and then uh, the human with you and with the human potential. We had that name that show, and um, we had many other names too that came along the way. Yeah, I know it's been a been a long uh long winding and you know great road with lots and lots of shows and lots of great guests and then i then i you know then i did more radio shows and i got more people to come on to the shows and then um we gave all the people opportunities to do the radio shows and then you know and then they did it for uh for so long and then then i did and then i took over and did more on it and then then I became the drafted manager for all the radio shows. And then I was also the actress, the actress for the radio drama with him. That was an um, you know, amazing experience right there, too. So yeah, when you do... Oh, yeah, and, and definitely a lot more things there. And I um, think it's... it's um, Definitely extraordinary journey and um, very good experiences. 
and definitely a lot of you know a lot of growth and 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 that's what ha- and that's just the story when you get opportunities that you learn more then then you learn more wisdom from it, and then you grow from it mm. yes, so that's how that is and then um what else and then. How long have you been doing your poetry? Your publisher for your poetry? How long have you been doing the publishing thing for? Ten years? Twenty years? Um, well, I mean, I've been writing poetry for you know around that long, but uh, publishing uh, really only—I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean by publishing. Because I, you know, back when I was in high school, I self-published a bunch of my poetry books um, just because you know I wanted to get them in book form. So I learned how to do it back then, but I didn't really start publishing until, you know, 2009, 2010, when it was other people's stuff. And, you know, that happened by accident. And then I just kind of... That's right, 2010, when we we did the book for autism. Yeah, that was actually the the second book that I published with other people's stuff. So... Um, And, you know, it was a big hit early on in, you know, in the publishing career. So... You know, it uh, kind of led that, to a lot of opportunities yeah, that was, and a lot of. Yeah, that was huge, and then, and then, um, so that was a, a amazing. That was a, that was a, and we had two series of that book, and the first, and then the, then the, 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 yeah, the, you had brought the books to Anchor International Two People's Awards when your friend went there, uh, Mark, you know. Yeah. And he brought those books, and then he said they they brought the books to over there for that. Yeah, and, then, and you know, seven was, seven years later, we're like about at 150 titles. So, you know, it's been a been a lot of books and a lot of writing and a lot of stuff in a lot of places. So. <laughs> yeah, and yes, and same thing. I I have a lot of my poems in anthology, and I have um been going on for at least 12 years. I um uh, my organization for Latino Autistic Artists and then um for at least almost 5 years and the last few years it was um became stronger the college I developed my own college organization for my new asset Latino Autistic Artists College. And that's basically like a home or or, or and it could be a home and a community college as an individualized for the person. So then you're the director, manager, you're the creative artist, you, you design it yourself, the producer, you know I me. Mean? So you have all these names and, you know, titles, and I have at the Notice Goddess College magazine that design, hoping to be, you know, to be published soon with that, to make a physical magazine. That would be uh, amazing, you know, opportunities right there. So I'm, I wrote this quote, um, it's called, Life is still, quiet, extremely important, be observant, noticing the details, the patterns in life, repeat it, repeat itself, process it. Like that? That's my quote. In some quote, right?
So we thank James P. Wagner for coming on, and we're going to play the music. So I have, like what I talked about before, my own organization, Athena Autistic Artists, and Athena Autistic Artists College, and I have Athena Autistic Artists College magazine. And then, oh, yes, and um, he was an arch, um, he got his award, uh, and... Um, And I got the opportunity to for Mark Roslin um, to to give his award to him, and we and I did for Athena Tiscalis. We did a, a nice ceremony for for Mark, and it was beautiful. We got to read his poems for his new book, and um, and and we and then I not, and then I um, we gave him nice. Uh, we we said something, and uh, and then we um, gave him his award. So he, that was um, exciting for him. And um, also, in my first, before my radio shows I started, um, in 2010, in, two, in 2010, I was the award recipient for visual arts for six of my paintings. And then 2011, I was the um, the community uh, award recipient for the community mentor. And 2012, I was the award recipient for Lyra Arts for five of my poems. So all this was an you know amazing journey for me and extraordinary. So well, thank. Jolly, and we're going to an amazing experience in, with the Film Fest. We got to meet Leo and Charlie, and I also we I also um, we got um, they got to meet the other people. So um, April, Cheyenne, good break. And we're gonna play out the music from April. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.